Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is supported by Golden Artist Colors, manufacturing in upstate New York, Golden Acrylics, Williamsburg Oils, and most recently, Core Watercolors, an employee-owned company committed to producing the highest quality materials while maintaining a culture of stewardship and community involvement. You can try their acrylics, oils, and water media. It's all top of the line. And for more information about Golden Artist Colors, call them at 1-800-959-6543 or visit goldenpaints.com. Sound and Vision is also brought to you by Charter Coffee House. Charter is on Graham Avenue in East Williamsburg, just one block from the Graham L stop. They serve great coffee, pastries, donuts, and more. Not only do I enjoy their fresh-brewed coffee at the store, I also get my beans for home from Charter. They carry and brew Middle State Coffee, a great roaster out of Denver, and they're currently working with them on a custom blend made specifically for Charter. Find out more at www.chartercoffee.com and follow them on Instagram at charter underscore BK. Brian Balot is an artist born and raised in East Orange, New Jersey, and lives and works in Brooklyn. He received his BFA from the School of Visual Arts after a short stint at Cooper Union. He's represented by Gavin Brown's Enterprise and has had solo shows at Moran Bondaroff, 24-7 365, Retrospective in Hudson, The Journal Gallery, Zercher Studio, Canada, and many others. He's had group shows at MOCAD in Detroit, Gavin Brown, the Jewish Museum, Dodge Gallery, the Musée d'Art Moderne in Saint-Étienne in France, The Hole, Loyal Gallery, and many more. He's done performances, worked with children via art-making workshops, collects records, drawings, and other objects, and has at his hand in a lot more projects and events. His work is in the collection of the Museum of Modern Art, and he's been written about in Art in America, Art News, Art Review, The New York Times, amongst many others. I stopped by Brian's Brooklyn studio for a nice talk about his days growing up in New Jersey, his big band affinity as a kid, Catholic school, faux baroque, unauthorized murals, jazz, and more. Here's our conversation. You have a good lean-in. You you have a good mic presence. All right. Mic presence. Microphone (laughs) on. (laughs) So... I wanted to, I stopped from asking too much because I wanted to talk about it on the air, but um, you grew up in Jersey. What part of New, New Jersey? Jer- what part of New Jersey did you grow up in? I grew up in East Orange, East right Orange. on the border of um, Newark. Right. And that is 287, I want to say, or 270? 280. 280 is yeah, off, off of 280. the road. Yeah. Because <laughs> I drive through New Jersey a lot and you always see the uh, signs for the oranges. Yeah. So mm-hmm. that's where you grew up? Yep, the and oranges. What was your childhood like? Um, childhood, very good, unscathed. You um, made it through? Uh, priest touched me. I'm all right. <laughs> no, I'm fine. <laughs> I, uh, no, I, I grew up um, in East Orange and, uh, yeah, proud, Jersey proud, Jersey something. Um, local hero was thomas edison because the laboratories were there oh nice so strangely enough that figure did affect me and my family in some roundabout and central way you still um fill your apartment with edison bulbs to this day (laughs) yes (laughs) they are nice 
Oh, they're beautiful. They made a big comeback recently. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're great in uh, Brooklyn bars. Wonderful. Yeah, all over the place. <laughs> Edison is still ringing through Brooklyn. So when you uh, when you grew up in Orange, what was the uh, the school situation like? Did you were you always into art? Did you take art classes as a young kid? Was that your? Um, yeah, I. Uh, the thing was is that um, my family is pretty arty and the supportive of the arts yeah uh my father was an artist a commercial photographer oh yeah um did he work in the city a lot he worked in the city oh yeah yeah Yeah. so i was surrounded by the arts and um i went to a catholic boys school in summit new jersey how was that um it was was fine it was uh funny Mm -hmm. a lot of the priests were really demented fellows yeah quite entertaining actually (laughs) one was weirder than the other yeah um i feel like i slipped in at a time where a much easier time um i don't know i mean i got away with a lot and uh there wasn't so much art going on in my school so it was my mother who put me through different types of summer programs. Yeah. So I went to something at Rutgers, Uni- Rutgers University called Summer Arts Institute uh-huh. for a couple of years. And then I went to the um, governor's governor's school. Was she creative? And what, like, was my mom, her, yeah, did she have? Yeah, my mom was creative. Uh, she's a teacher. Oh, yeah. And for actually a little, a short period of time, she taught me. I went to Oak Knoll. Um of the holy child Jesus. <laughs> um, so she taught me in fifth and sixth grade. Um, she taught... Um, All um, subjects or... No, specifically she taught uh, ancient civilizations and uh, so history. Yeah. And she, you know, was very obsessed with ancient civilizations did that, did that rub off a little bit? Were you, did you become interested in kind of like, maybe not history per se, but like where things come from? Oh, sure. The lineage of things? Yeah, yeah. I mean, she did this really great project that was pretty awesome where she would break up the class into two halves and each class had to make up a fake culture. Uh-huh. So you had to figure out whether your culture was in the desert or was on the mountains or had rivers or were fishermen and make all these objects like um, uh, jewelry, um, clay bowls, manuscripts, kind of um, outlining the um, your culture, like yeah. what gods you believed in or how you traded stuff. or And then you were to break these things up and make them artifacts and hand them to the other half of the class. And the other half of the class did the same. And then you had to sort of decipher or gain interest in the other person's cultural artifacts? Yeah, nice. yeah. so it glued them back together, and the the other half of the class was in charge of trying to be an archaeologist. Yeah, and it's so, pretty cool. Yeah, that was really something. So, the, And this was also in Catholic school, correct? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it was, you grew up pretty religious family? No, no, not at all. I mean, Catholics are heathens. I don't know if you know that. Um, <laughs> I've heard. <laughs> um, no, not my mom definitely out of guilt dragged me to church, which was so miserable. I, like I would wake one eye would open up to the Sunday morning world and I would just pray and try to do magical spells 
you know, to my mother's sleeping um, bed to kind of just convince her, please don't wake up. We don't need to go to church. We don't, you know. See, good for the imagination, though. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Inspired some. But, I can't imagine, like, I never had the opportunity to go to church, but I can't imagine that many kids like church. Yeah, I mean. Right? No, I mean, it's pretty boring. boring. Yeah. And boredom I mean, is really the, you know, kryptonite for kids. Yeah. Like sitting there being quiet for an hour is probably the hardest thing to do. What are you going to stare at? The 12 uh, tribulations of Jesus until he, you know, bleeds to death? Right. I yeah. I mean, that's all you're looking at is carvings, the backs of people's hair, you yeah. know. Some stained glass. Stained glass. Probably that's the top. That's the best. <laughs> yeah, right? that's the, as good as you're going to get. <laughs> that's why I immediately go to stained glass. It's like when we went to um, to Paris and we would go to these churches just to visit, you know, check out the architecture, like Notre Dame or places like that. The stained glass is amazing. It's beautiful. Unreal. I mean, Unreal. that's the one thing I would just stare at the whole time, I think. Well, that's the thing about the Roman Catholic Church is they're really good at the spectacle. They're really yeah. good at the glitzy things, the golds, the, the showing off the opulence of their artisans, the money that they were able to uh, throw towards the arts. You it's know. persuasive. Because oh. after going to Notre Dame, I mean, I, that place, I can, I walked out thinking, now I can see why people were influenced and kind of believed after being in that place. Because it's so magical. And sure. Impressive. Not like the church down the street from me in Pittsburgh growing up, which I saw and I was like, eh. Yeah. <laughs> it's okay. Leaving that place and you're like, it was, you know, a spiritual experience, even if you weren't, you know, religious, so to sure. speak. Yeah. I mean, there's a whole... Um, it may sound weird to use this word, but science to setting up a church. Yeah. There's a whole language, uh, you know, where an altar is um, placed. Also, the type of wood that the altar is made of. There's all these type of signals that go on it. It's pretty amazing because uh, in a certain way, what you're watching is a magical, almost occult thing going yeah. on. Yeah. You know, blood, wine turning into blood, flesh eating flesh, all this kind of stuff. It's pretty amazing how they were really rocking with the cock out there. Yeah. Um, you know, when in the the idea of magic is really on parade. Um, so you have that dynamic <laughs> and then you're getting to go out and do some creative things outside of school. So, yeah. Did that feel like an escape or did you really enjoy it or was it just kind of fun or oh well the thing is is that really my parents were not religious my father never went to church oh yeah you know uh, my father's church was uh, a dark bar right um, a dark church um so it wasn't like you know my family um said prayer before we ate yeah you know that sort of stuff so there wasn't that much of a drastic well catholic school but catholic school always seems like it's harsh or or you know, the, Immersion. the school that my parents went to, the Christian brothers would, you know, smack the shit out of them. Yeah. You know, so that's what I meant from um, before that, like, I feel like I slipped in in a time where things were really easy. I didn't go post Columbine. No one's like, there's no guard at the right, door. Right. There's no clear backpacks. There's none of this bullshit. Yeah. It was a little uh, easier. It was way easier. And the priests were really entertaining. They were real. They, one was weirder than the other. Yeah. Um, actually, a funny story is um, when I moved back to um, Brooklyn or New York, 
in the year 2000, I was living in Greenpoint and um, I was getting my morning coffee and I look over and I see that the Daily News has a headline, Priest from Hell. And lo and behold, it was one of the priests oh, no. that had uh, taught me. He had been um, robbing money or skimming money off of uh, his church that he was in charge of for years. Oof. And the FBI like went to his house, and they he answered the door in a kimono. And um, <laughs> makes sense. Yes, <laughs> and uh, there was stacks of money on the table behind him and a gun. And Jeez. supposedly he said, essentially, and there's more money in bags in the bedroom. <laughs> he was a real character. <laughs> Seriously, this the guy's name was Father Johnson. And uh-huh. he would go, boys, 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 boys. JF, JFK, now you could go, boys, boys, boys. FDR was an asshole. FDR was an asshole. FDR was an asshole. And it was very strange he would repeat everything. Yeah, that's odd. <laughs> and then he'd be like, don't write that in your books. Don't write that in your books. Don't write that in your books. Boy, he really did have a science going on, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, he's really... And of course, the guy who was skimming off of his rectory, what, cl- what club did he run at my school? But the Stamp and Coin Club. <laughs> <laughs> Skimming off the rector <laughs> just yeah. has a bad sound to it. Oh man! So, um, <laughs> well, so you had that. Um, were you drawing a lot as a kid? Um, I went through different stages, you know. So there was one point where, when I was very young, I really jumped into drawing, and I was drawing all the time. I, I'm an only brat, so I didn't have yeah. a brothers, no siblings, so I had to entertain myself, and I did that pretty easily. But um, so I, I, I um, you know, played in my imaginary world or whatever. And so some of the earliest worlds were me as a pirate or me as a robot or me as uh, Thomas Edison. Mm-hmm. And so I'd play laboratory or I would play, um, yeah, some, some variation of that. So my earliest drawings are of pirates and then robots. Yeah. And then from robots, it went into classic cars. And of I'm, course. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. And I'm kind of convinced that the robots that I saw in Star Wars, like, got me into this notion of design that then, like, easily went to classic cars, like the face yeah. of them, the grill, right. the lights. And, and it was funny because then years later in high school, I started getting into classic radios. Mm-hmm. And again, I think it was the same thing I was being pulled to. The gestalt of this face, this grill, the knobs, yeah, and fetishizing it, right, and, and it's, it's talking to you, in yeah. a way, you know, like yeah. the radio, completely. Those kind of things have that look of like a face that's they're a robot, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. And those things still chase me through my work and paintings to this day. Yeah, you know? was there a lot of music in the house, or was it kind of a quiet house? Tons of music. Yeah. That, that's what I also meant about my family being very artistic is that both sides of the family after dinner would sing. They would oh, get really? around the piano, both sides of my mother's and my father's side, um, you know, after eating would sing their songs. Uh, my father was a real big entertainer, loved singing, played the piano, played the guitar. Um, so there was always music playing. So it was a big influence. 
one of the jobs my father had was as a commercial photographer was uh, doing record covered albums. Oh, nice. So, um, yeah, we were entrenched in music. That was a big deal. And did you pick up an instrument early or would you just more listen than play? You know, I, I don't, didn't have any discipline and to follow through on learning an instrument. And I Mm -hmm. feel, you know, a little bad about that. My parents were not um, strict, so yeah. they didn't force me. You know, I tried to pick up the trumpet for a little bit, and that was a disaster. I always flirted with the piano. There was a p- piano in in my house, uh, and it's yeah, not easy, is it? Pianos, I feel like such a difficult instrument. Um, I don't know. I mean, I uh, at this to this day, I just bang on them, but yeah. Um, I love the piano. I know. I'm obsessed. Such a great. I'm obsessed with. So you had piano. a piano, piano, like a. Yeah, yeah, and so did my grandparents. Both grandparents' house had a piano. Isn't such a great thing for a house to have? I mean, oh, yeah. granted, you have to have the space. It's a commitment, but yeah. it's such a great thing to have in a house. Oh my god! My uncle had one, and I just remember going over there. It was so fun to just sit there and, you know, weren't even doing it, just like hitting it and making noises was yeah. such a great thing. Oh, it's incredible. Whereas a guitar sometimes, and you know, I played guitar when I was younger, but the guitar was more. I don't know, like you were more afraid to touch it. It's someone else's guitar or there was something about the authorship of it. Whereas a piano, it was just like there, it's big. Anyone can go hit it and make some noises. Yeah, completely. Because it's such a big uh, piece of furniture. Yeah. It feels like that it can take more wear and tear versus like a violin. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> An oboe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Or even a saxophone where you have to put stuff together and assemble it. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah, so well, when you're in high school or junior, you know, as you're getting older, was the path sort of paved through creative stuff or were you like, what were your thoughts about what you wanted to do? When did you, did you have a, like a light bulb moment of, I just want to make things or did that come slowly over time? Um, I guess, you know, I was really, um, influenced by my father's example Uh, Mm -hmm. Thomas Edison was a big figure in my town uh, and I fetishized going to his laboratories and seeing all the gear, all the Erlenmeyer flasks and crazy apothecary um, so there was a period where I wanted to do that Mm -hmm. I wanted to be in science or something or invent that kind of idea I remember I invented this ridiculous thing that was a magnet in front of a um, a vacuum head so that like you wouldn't vacuum up paper clips was completely ridiculous <laughs> and it didn't work and whatever. But anyhow, I had this inclination to to invent or create that then just spilled into the arts yeah. effortlessly and and it was more realistic because I'm not don't have a mathematical mind. I don't um, and. You know, I was so nerding out to get into chemistry and I would force my grandfather to talk about chemistry and show me stuff. But by the time I really chemistry rolled around, I wasn't up for it. Yeah. You know, and the arts were way easier for me. And, you know, um, my father's um, my father's black and white photography lab. He had one of them in downstairs. Mm -hmm. So I was always I grew up. A lot of time spending uh, hours in the dark room with him. So, 
um, I don't know, I was surrounded by the arts and so it was pretty easy just to flow into that. That's such a nice framework to be like, oh, it's okay to just spend hours of a day in this small space making things. You know what I mean? And it's oh, like yeah. you get probably comfortable in that setting and that's pretty much not too far from what you're doing now in a way, you know, it's just oh, yeah. coming to that dark room or that, that space where you make what you're making and just getting lost. Yeah. Did you listen to music in there? Oh, Did sure. people listen to music in dark rooms? Oh, yeah. <laughs> That's I'm, my lack of <laughs> photographic knowledge or, or being tight with a lot of photographers in their process. But I wonder if sometimes when you think about it, like you would imagine it being a very quiet, you know, pensive place. But What I guess, did Irving Penn do? <laughs> I mean, to get all those zone, the zone system correct, he needed it to be absolutely quiet. Or Metallica. Uh, pulling prints at the same time. Uh, my my father was not um like an anal um d- a photographer where you know I met photographers at SVA that you know the only reason I know of the zone system is not from my father it was from another dude mm-hmm. and then I saw that photography could be done another way yeah which was in to my mind uh just more uptight you know um it was black and white photography so another thing it was we weren't in pitch black yeah i couldn't imagine doing that either right you know um so you mentioned sva i mean when you graduated high school was the thought i just got to go to art school did you know that like were you pretty sure about oh, wanting yeah, to do that? Yeah, I was sure that, like, you know, through my mother really helped me by making sure I went to the right um, summer art programs. Um, even during the school year in high school, she enlisted me uh, into a acting camp mm-hmm. or acting after school. And so th- these classes really cemented, in my mind, what I was going to do. Right. And um, with the leg up from my father being a photographer and I um I felt pretty cocky and so I was like oh I'm gonna get into Cooper Union yeah you know so and and I did but then I immediately was thrown out within eight months (laughs) it was a it was a disaster a little bit of a disaster what Um, do you want to get into why you got thrown out um, yeah, well, I mean, I was just a maniac back then. I was very hyper. I still am pretty hyper, but back then I had, you know, a 20-year-old uh, go, go, go. That energy. Yeah. And I so miss I, those days. <laughs> I, was a real, I still am a real clown, so I was a lot of slapstick, a lot of craziness, and I think that that kind of crazy, uh, hyped-up, way got me just flung out of there specifically what happened was is i painted an unrequested mural outside the president's <laughs> office on, oh, those unrequested murals <laughs> always come back to get you <laughs> what, what was the content um the thing was is that um i've always loved collaboration of course that's also what i love about music yeah. uh, and jazz in particular because it's a collaborative team effort mm-hmm. um so me and this guy, uh, Mosley, um, we met each other within the first month of being 
at uh, Cooper. He was actually a sophomore. I was a freshman. And we started this collaborative uh, painting together where we were doing faux Baroque. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of nude cupids and angels and fl- fluttering around with golds and stuff. You know, neither of us could paint that well, so they wound up looking like bad versions of Matisse. Okay. And so on the eighth floor, we painted up all the columns. We painted up the elevator. We painted up, you know, we covered the entire joint. And we did this, you know, we started at 6 and after classes at 6 p.m. We used all the material there, and we did it in broad daylight. Yeah. So we thought that, you know, we were pretty happy with ourselves. We thought everything was going to be cool. We signed our names right above the elevator, like in a big kind of faux Keith Haring-esque frame with both of our names, James Mosley, Brian Blatt. Well, in the morning when we got back to school, we were descended upon as soon as we got into the place. The SWAT team. Yeah, (laughs) we were immediately plucked and and brought to the vice president's office. Now, the funny thing is the vice president thought this was hilarious. Mm -hmm. He liked the painting. He even gave us his camcorder at the time, and we went and filmed it. And so oh, man, we did, you you filmed your own evidence against you. <laughs> yeah, I guess <laughs> we were like, sure, let's film this. Yeah, let's this document great. this. <laughs> yeah. And um, so we were pretty sure that everything was cool, but within a half hour, it turned super sour. Yeah, and um, we were in big trouble. We had to pay another team to paint it over. Oh. We could have painted over quite easily, but we had to pay these this crew um, to come and paint it over and. I, um, since I was a freshman, they were like, let's nip this in the bud. So mm-hmm. they just, they bounced me We're not going to deal with another three years of this. Yeah, kind of. exactly. Exactly. So the older guy got to stay, but I got, I was you were too flicked much. out of there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it, and I definitely, that was probably when I went through my first existential, like, mind um, cra- uh, crash. Right. And I remember just running to the woods with my uncle in aunt's house in Sussex, New Jersey. And I didn't know what to do. I felt like a complete loser. And I remember at the time I was like, I'm going to figure out what minimalism is all about. I don't know why. Uh, Minimalism is always the answer. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Just break it down to a couple lines. (laughs) Um, How did that work? It was all right. I mean, uh, as, um, you know, before I went into Cooper, the one, movement that really affected me was Dadaism and Surrealism. Yeah. And I was obsessed with Dadaism. I loved this anarchistic, uh, crazy attitude. To me, I enjoyed that even a little bit more, if it was even possible, than Surrealism. Mm -hmm. Because I loved the idea of absurdity. And maybe even that, like, that movement gave me the excuse to act extremely strange. Right. And I think it was that which got me curb stomped at yeah. Cooper. At the, um, at the moment, did you, were you kind of there to realize that Cooper Union seems like such a sort of straight laced, a little more tidied up place and that your energy was just maybe not a good match for it? Or did you just feel like this is just rejection? You know what I mean? Um, because there's other schools where that stuff goes on and it's kind of celebrated. You yeah. know what I mean? Where it's like, yeah, man, more more energy, do it. Yeah. And then, I, I don't know, I didn't go to Cooper, but I imagine it being, just because of the legacy of it, that it's a little more analytical or a little more kind of, I may be totally wrong, but it seems a little more straight-laced than, you know, 
Yeah, other well, there's definitely an attitude that like, hey, we're paying for your education here. Right. Let's and be serious. A yeah. little bit of that. And the thing was, is when I went there, there was a lot of like some of the older Bauhaus teachers. Yeah. There was certain rigidity, um, you know, for better or worse. I met one teacher, Nikki Logis. I still remember her to today and I, I, I loved her so much. And she was kind of like a Jerry Lewis. She's like, formalism. <laughs> children, children, come around. Children. All right. Formalism is... Uh... <laughs> I loved her so much. She was uh, such a character. Yeah. Um, a breath of fresh air from the other faculty, I imagine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. She was so awesome. And she was on the board when they threw me out. And I collapsed in front of the board, just started crying. And she said, Mr. Balot, you will be fine. I am sure of it. Don't worry. I was like, okay. Don't forget about formalism. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was was nice of her. Yeah. Yeah. And we always had a special um, connection because she loved non-such label records. And so we would talk about specifically Paul Jacobs' recording of WC Images on Nonsuch, or we would talk about Charles Ives' mm-hmm. recordings on Nonsuch. It was funny. I must have really been hard to handle at 19, 20, 21, 22, and I apologize to all the girlfriends and every <laughs> the universe for where I was at at that point. It's good to get that on record. I'd like <laughs> yeah. to apologize, too. I'm sure I was a disaster at that point in my life. <laughs> you know, we all go through stages. Yes. Right. <laughs> so what happened after you had your existential um, kind of, you know, not enlightenment, but moment out in those woods? I mean, did you come up with, well, minimalism? Did it save you? Did you come up with a game plan or? Um, yeah, well, you know, there was I, I, where I grew up in East Orange. I grew up right above a doctor's office. It was my grandfather's, my mother's father's office. Mm hmm. And since my father was pretty wild, he, um, you know, he didn't necessarily come home all the time like other families. Yeah. My grandfather took it upon himself to kind of be my other father figure. So whenever I'd roll in after school, he'd always try to learn me. And my grandfather was really glowing in his world and orbit that he lived in. So the keys was someone who was from a large Italian family and had dealt with the depression and then there's World War II. The guy was always trying to learn me, God bless him. And so mm-hmm. he said this one thing that I always remember and it was, it was, it goes like, sweet are the uses of adversity. And, you know, I didn't, when I first heard that, I was like, oh, what is this mumbo jumbo or whatever? It's hoity-toity Shakespearean line. But in fact, it is something that I feel in a weird way is, exactly what the artistic process is it's about turning shit to gold it's yeah. about the alchemy of turning a shitty situation or maybe even a defect or a weakness into something that later on can be a strong you know strength yeah um so i figured out minimalism and wound up really loving it um and went to sva but had converted into a nerd from kind of a bratty punk i was then all of a sudden a nerd and screaming at kids in class because they were interrupting a lecture was a completely a 360 or 180 180 180 yeah um so but by the end of um sva i was back to my jerky self 
my prankstery self. Was the 180 just uh, a result of getting kicked out and wanting to sort of hone things in a little bit and, you know, yeah, tightening the wrench for oh, a little and then absolutely. it slowly loosened back up? <coughs> and what was the, what kind of work were you making at this point? Were you exploring or did you, were you working through something pretty consistent? It, you know, well, it's, a, it's a hard to really think back then and know give you a direct answer um i feel in a certain way i wished that i had um worked harder made more work back then but um when i went when the reason i got into cooper was because of my photography portfolio Mm -hmm. the reason the portfolio looked good was because i had my father in his dark room so the stuff probably looked way more sophisticated than the stuff that was rolling out of just a high school dark room. Yeah, I had thought I had invented something which I called photo painting, which was I would take a portrait of a friend, cut it up, spread it over a canvas, and then kind of cubistically paint the the photo back together again. Yeah, you know, in a fragmented way. Um, I think around that time, I was also <clears throat> really getting into fallism and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, Dada was really something that was I was into. Like I did this one crazy Dada project where in a portrait of a friend um, was I would give them a test tube and they would piss in it, mm-hmm. and I would keep the urine in my grandfather's. Um, vaccine fridge uh-huh. and so i had portraits of all my friends but it was just their piss right. in a jar practically so there was data things like that there i also tried to make paintings by like eating food like um, pretzels and beans and spitting them on a canvas mm-hmm. so there was half of my process is really interested in making stuff difficult for me and the world yeah and you know the other half i was i was watching these two artists at Cooper that I met, this guy named Guillermo Carrion and another guy named uh, Guevara Solomon, and they both had this great, like, loose gestural way of painting that I love, like like Kosov or yeah. Frank Auerbach. And so I started to really lust after this kind of very thick, uh, expressive way of painting. Um but by the time I got into SVA, I still was doing a lot of weird performances. Like I loved falling on the floor, falling down staircases and stuff like that. Um, yeah, it seems like you had, well, you've always had like this performative element to what you're creating in a way. Like you want to sort of, that impulse has always been there. Did that come from... What do you think? Where do you think that's from? Did you did you love like stand up comedy, or did you watch slapstick, or do you think it's an only child thing of where you were trying to get some attention, or like you know what I mean? How do, yeah, where well, does that I what's think that I born was out of? Definitely grabbing, trying to grab attention. I definitely my father was a big example because he was a prankster and a very loud merrymaker himself. Yeah. he was always the loudest person in the room. He was always screaming. So it was that, but it was also because my mom, you know, um, persuaded me to get into uh, improv acting classes and um, the program that I was involved in um, at Rutgers, the summer program was called InterArts. So it actually involved all the arts. So I think that 
made such a lasting effect on me in my mind there was no reason to separate the arts yeah you know and so whatever way an idea came in whether it was uh, through writing or through my limbs it was valid and was it tricky as far as because at that point we're the same age pretty much yeah at that point the interdisciplinary structure of schools wasn't quite as fluid as it is now usually did you find you were bumping up against a lot of walls there and it was made it kind of difficult well even to, to today yeah you know like um I've always affiliated myself with painting, mm-hmm. <clears throat> but I feel like a lot of the painters at different times have said, well, you're not a, you're really a painter. And I'm like, I guess I don't, you know, I, uh, I'm not, I, I don't, um, I'm not going to bet the ranch just on my paintings. It yeah. has to be coming in through multiple different forms. Right. You know? Um, yeah. It seems like there's a lot of people who kind of, if they're a, let's say a painter, for example, or a sculptor, they're working through the medium and getting ideas out slowly over these shifts in the medium or whatever. It seems like a lot of your decisions are coming before what you're making in a sense of like the impulse is there. You're not finding the impulse through the medium necessarily. You have those impulses and then you're kind of finding channels to get it out there. Is that yeah fairly accurate? Yeah, I don't know. I think I... D- d- yeah. I mean, I'm sure you do both, but it just seems like it leans more than a lot of other people in that you're flexible in the way that you're expressing yourself in these different channels. Um, because you do do performances still, and you do, yeah. like, I know you're super interested in music, and it's not like you're just sitting in here making drawings every day or just making paintings. It's a bigger it's a bigger thing than just that, you know? Yeah, the other thing is, is that, you know, then... As I went through art school, I started to fall in love with artists like um, Mike Kelly or um, who's the other Bruce Nauman, and yeah. I love them because it seemed that they could do a similar thing. Right. If they wanted to videotape themselves singing a song or even saying a couple phrases, they could. If they wanted to film themselves just slapping their belly, they could do that. They could make drawings they could work in neon and you know and i really um that just seemed like a natural way to approach everything yeah remember that nauman fountain photograph where he's spitting the water and oh yeah i mean that was when i first saw that i was like wait you can do that yeah (laughs) yeah it's that's art you know it's such a great art school light bulb moment you know where you're like oh yeah you can do that yeah, and then you see the Chris, Chris Burden shot thing, or like all those things where you're, you know, it really opens up your idea of what art and expressing things can be. You know, yeah, yeah, that that's really was is very influential to me. Like the the idea is, is uh, yeah. <clears throat> so when you first started, so you graduated SVA, right? Yeah. And then you, but you were always in the city. So what came next? Did you just set up a studio or? It was a weird time. I don't know. Like the art world was nothing like it is now. Yeah. Um, There wasn't, it didn't look like there were any opportunities for me to show. Um, You know, the way that the whole train was different. I mean, half of the art, I was going to see art when it was in Soho. Yeah. I went and saw, you know, um, Tip Dunham at Sonabend. Mm-hmm. Castelli was still around. Yeah. 
you know. So as I was graduating at SVA, the, uh, the art world was starting to make its way over to um, Chelsea. Yeah. Uh, that um, Carol Dunham show wasn't it? That was the one with the styrofoam balls on the canvas, right? Yeah. Remember that show? Yeah, absolutely. I saw a two person. It was him and uh, Larry Pittman together. Yeah. And that show blew me away. I was like, it was two very different ways of working that I just could, I was like, wow. You know, one was just like gluing these things and painting them and putting them on the canvas, which seemed like crazy. And then yeah. Larry Pittman where there's so many layers and it's so like, how did, how did he do this? You know what I mean? Completely. Like, it was pretty mind blowing. Yeah. I, I love when combos like that happen. I, I think I remember one of the meaningful shows, um, was the retrospective of Basquiat, the Whitney, yeah. and I think that overlapped with Agnes Martin. Sure, so those the, two together. Yeah. yeah, and it was awesome. I'm always interested in the polar, polarity of everything. Yeah, I'm really interested in the mixing of opposites, or you know, frustrating someone's um, anticipation of what's next. Yeah. I feel like that's an important thing of jazz or storytelling or joke telling. Right, it's um, all the same thing too, really. That's yeah. what's the great thing. Like, if you look at Basquiat and Agnes Martin, couldn't in in first glance couldn't be more different. Yeah, but really, it's about. I mean, Basquiat's looking out, interpreting the world through these kind of this language that he's creating, which is related to graffiti. You know, it's related to all these things. And then Agnes Martin is kind of like looking in, of kind of this quiet and repetition and like emptying out. But it's really just just looking at yourself through the world in two different ways, but it's really the same thing in a way. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and they're both obsessed with lines. Yeah. Which yeah, is, Agnes Martin, I love her, man. I yeah. just saw a great documentary on Canopy, the Canopy website mm-hmm. I was talking about before. It was awesome, inspiring. Yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah. It sounds like she suffered, though, which is yeah. pretty rough. Right. Um, so, so how did you... How did you end up, uh, you know, finding your way in, so to speak? Because you felt at first that like, oh, there's no way, I'm, or there's not really a channel here for me to share my work with people. So how did you crack that shell? Yeah, it was it was difficult. Like, it really didn't seem like anything was going to happen. Um, one of my teachers, Lucio Pazzi, used me in a performance. Um, <clears throat> I was just, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I didn't even, at this point, I just did everything kind of emotionally and highly romantically, mm-hmm. meaning I just did things passionately and instinctually. Yeah. I wasn't very strategic. I remember at one point, Barnaby Furness was like, you took all the wrong um, teachers. And I was like, what are you talking about? And he was like, these, these teachers that you like or you took in your senior class are not going to prepare you for a professional art world uh-huh. experience. And I really resented him for that. Um, but anyhow, I just ran back to Jersey and kind of arrested my development and went back to the mall. Yeah. And so I was at the Short Hills Mall, which was really close to my high school and my mom's grammar school that she taught at. And I uh, worked at uh, Johnny Rockets. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> when you were living at home at that point. Yeah. I went so you were ba- able to save? What? Uh, you were able to save up some money? Save what? <laughs> <laughs> you were able to eat free burgers and fries? Yes. That, well, okay. <laughs> At least there's that. 
um, it was it was <laughs> that fun. must have been hard though, right? What going back to Short Hills and or was it comfortable? It was fine. I was really pissing in the face of time at that point. There was, I was just, <clears throat> I might as well have been a balloon cut loose. I yeah. was just floating around, and um, <clears throat> it was, uh, yeah. So, what drew you back over here? <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> I guess a lot of things are my relationships. So, um, a seven-year relationship had just ended. Uh-huh. Um, and I was in a seven year relationship with a dancer, a choreographer, and we did everything together. We made music together. We made performances together. We made poetry together. And when that fell apart, it was my world had was, um, there was a restart. Yeah. And then I started going back into New York and that's when there was bellwether. Right. I went to bellwether and I, I had... A friend there, Jeff, who was yeah. um, showing there, and that's where I, I knocked into Melissa Brown, mm-hmm. and then I moved into New York around 2000. So uh, you kind of reconnected through relationships of people. Yeah, 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 and and from there, um, did you set up a studio right away, or what was your kind of working situation? Well, I mean, it was amazing back then. Uh, in 2000, I moved to Greenpoint, and I had a backyard and a studio and uh, and, and a room for $500. Remember those times? Oh, my God. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so much fun. Yeah. Um, had a lot of wild parties. Melissa Brown's a, hella, a lot of fun. Yeah. And we would whoop up a really fantastic time. Um, she has some super talented friends, and I got to meet a whole other constellation of artists right. through her. Um, and that's when I started to realize how rich the uh, RISD graduates were. Yeah. And it seems like that school turns out so many um, talented artists. It's right. amazing. And this is a commercial for RISD. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. this, this week's podcast is sponsored by... <laughs> Yeah, they do turn out a lot of really talented people. Yeah. But you meant rich as, as in the sense of their sort of creative talents, not just financially rich. Yeah, no, no. I was yeah. just talking about the artist she introduced me to. The artist, when she went to RISD, there was Fort Thunder. Yeah. There was, you know, so I was meeting Marie Lorenz. I was also meeting Joe Bradley. I was meeting... Uh, Chippendale, Brian Chippendale, and yeah. all those Matt Brinkman. And speaking of a artist slash music collaborative environment, that was yeah. a great yeah. moment in the early two thousands. Incredible, yeah. Um, and you know, I'm, I had my own friends, so at first I was reluctant. I was like, "Fuck your friends," and. <laughs> <laughs> You know, then I'd go meet, like, you know, my friends are in this band called Force Field. And then we'd go to, like, you know, the Greenpoint Tavern, and there's someone that looks like, you know, a psychedelic Wookiee yeah. going, like, <laughs> and I was like, well, oh, this shit's pretty cool. Your friends aren't bad. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I like Star Wars 2 in noise music. This is great. <laughs> I like this combo. So it was, you know, it was pretty awesome. Like seeing lightning bolt for the first time was hair raising. Yeah. And a hell of an experience. Yeah. Um, and those are the days of black dice and all that stuff. So you, were yeah. you going out to see a lot of music then? Yeah. 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 Lots of good live music. Yeah. 
and that at that point more venues i feel like than there are now in williamsburg and greenpoint in that area yeah i mean was it wasn't as expensive so right the terrain of everything changes when yeah yeah the venues change all that stuff yeah so when did you you made the move out here later on right yeah uh, moved out here in 2005 Uh uh-huh and this is a little off the beaten path from most studios that right or are there a lot of studios around um i think there's a good amount of studios here uh let's see this is a jazz town yeah there's a lot of jazz here so you, you can hear music outside your window right across from the park you walk in the park there's people uh, practicing it's really nice it's wonderful yeah i love it um and you live nearby which is nice so yeah. you don't have a short commute to the, yeah. to the studio, which is seven minutes away. That's a great thing. Yeah. Yeah. So when did you, when did you, I mean, I don't want to talk about it too much, but like, when did you start showing the work and when did you feel like, oh, there's an audience here and this is, you know, cause that's one of the, the best parts of being able to show your work in the city is like that dialogue that you start to get outside of the circle of your friends and studio mates and you know being able to share with a a greater population when did that start to come together and how was that for you well um i always try to tell people you know younger artists who are talking about their college experience you know it's a a crapshoot a lot of people have a miserable time at school yeah um I understand this. I think that there's something pretty artificial about the academy, and I, I have the, I tend to believe that we should always fuck up the academy, mm-hmm. um, and that the academy actually just pushes out a certain type of thinking that has to be undermined. Right. Um, having said that, I had a good time at school, but I try to tell kids like, you know, you may not n- know this, but you are meeting people and if you make at least one really good friend or like spirit or someone you could really debate with and knock around ideas and sharpen them up that's your first step into the professional life because you don't know what these friends who you meet in college could turn out to do for you later on and so when i was at sva i was collaborating with and very close to a painter named brendan cass Mm -hmm. and we painted a lot together and um, so what wound up happening was he um, was so advanced as a painter, he, he never really finished school. And he, he had immediately grabbed the attention of Kenny Schechter mm-hmm. and also the painter Donald Batchelor. Um, so what wound up happening was at a certain point, he kept on pushing me. He's like, hey, Kenny, you got to meet this guy, Brian. He's a great artist. You got to check him out, blah, blah, blah. You know, and I wasn't really making enough in my mind back then. Right. There wasn't enough work to look at, and I wasn't up to snuff. But after, like, the fifth time, like, Kenny, he said, okay, well, you can perform in one of my shows i remember it was in 1996 mm-hmm. the show was called oi and me and my girlfriend at the time larisa velez did a group of performances there um as i got to um you know break that nut um kenny Schechter, he finally offered me a show yeah but he offered me that show 
when he was leaving town and I did uh, to move to London and I did a a, a two floor show at his Rove space. Uh Um, Brendan Cass also then pushed me into the studio of Donald Batchelor. And um, my Brendan was at this point really antsy, had worked for him for five years and now wanted to move to Germany. And so uh, I started working for Donald in 2000, mm-hmm. around the same time that I moved back to um, New York City, to Greenpoint. And um, that's the other big thing that I really recommend for um, younger artists is to try to get into a professional uh, working artist studio. Just so you can see the, the way it work, like yeah. how people do it. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, of course, there's a big difference between working for Jeff Koons or right. working for Donald Batchelor. Like Donald um, had a much smaller workshop. So I got to observe the uh, maestro at work. He was very generous to um, telling stories about his life and his progression professionally through the art world. Right. And I never went to overgrad and I, I say don't fucking waste your time mm-hmm. and money. I don't know. I don't want to being a jerk comes so easily to me, folks. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's good for certain people and for some people it's it's not. You yeah. know, some people need that structure in two years and they need the visiting artists and that's their way of connecting with Completely. the people. Other yeah. people are more socially, you know, expressive and can get out there and connect and you know, I think it has its place for certain people. For other people they have no business being in there and you know, but but yeah. I, yeah, I hear what you're saying. Different strokes, different yeah. folks, definitely. I just felt like my overgrad was the Bachelor Studio. That'll do it, yeah. And all the crazy characters and personalities that I met there. Yeah. Um, well, and, and like he's an artist who's working. You're going to work around him. Someone like Coons, that's not really like working for any real artist. No artist really. No, you're that. just that's complaining the around other artists that's who the, are inhaling aluminum dust right. uh, and, for eight hours. And he's off somewhere. Like yeah. that's, You're not learning the real, the way it's probably going to be in your studio. No, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, but I think it's it was just amazing to hear uh, Donald tell different s- stories a lot of times with a shit-eating grin on his face. Yeah. <laughs> um, but just... <laughs> talking about the psychology of studio visits or you know he would always be talking about the old new york or even talking about jeff coons and how what that character was like down in the lower east side in the late 70s or yeah. the 80s um he's probably someone i should talk to eventually right he's yeah. probably got some good stories oh he's all he's fantastic and he is such a generous artist um with his time and his ideas you know, he another one of those shows that I saw. You know how you see those early on shows? Yeah. When you're younger and they're just like, whoa, you know, like, what's this? Yeah. And I remember going to, I, I forget what gallery it was on, Broad, West Broadway, I think. And it was a solo show of his with these. I remember just the scale was like, oh my, these are huge. Yeah. And then I think David Byrne or someone was at the opening where people were like, oh, there's like musicians here too. You know, it's just, yeah. there was yeah. like a charge in the air and, and the work was like unfamiliar. Like I was just like, what is this stuff? You know, completely. But, but those little moments that like give you that fuel to just say like, I, I want to do this. Yeah. You know, absolutely. That stuff's important. Completely. That's not in school. No, that starts the fire. Yeah. That that's not, you know, something learned or whatever. It's just an experience that really kind of like fuels you and makes you think like, yeah, I want to hang out with these people. I want to share 
my work like this, you know, and, and have this kind of like environment for being creative, which is, it's important. Yeah, definitely. But now I, I, I wonder if it must be so different because you remember in those days you had to go to the opening or go to the gal. I mean, now you see everything so easily online. Yeah, that sucks, doesn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I, I never wanted to get involved in any social media. Yeah. You know, I you fought I, it. I fought it off as long as I could. I mean, I don't I'm not the biggest team player. I'm I'm I hated sports. Um you know, I love the Groucho remarks line. I'd never be a part of a, a team a, that would have me. I would something along this line. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd never be a part of a club that would have me, me as, as a, member. a member. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so um what were we talking about? Social media. You fought oh, yeah. it off for a while. Yeah, so uh, Friendster, MySpace, Facebook, you know, they can all go to hell. Um, but Instagram yeah. wrote me in. Right. And a couple friends convinced me. Well, I remember Jesse Greenberg, mm-hmm. Annie Perlman, slowly convinced me to do it. And at first it, looked, it, was, it allured me because I saw it as kind of a, a cultural thrift store just pictures yeah and i loved it um but now i absolutely hate it again (laughs) and for many reasons right like i i hate now i'm aware i'm ultimately aware of surveillance and what come from systems of surveillance even when someone could see when i'm online i hate that yeah i don't want to tell you what the fuck i'm doing i'm hiding somewhere making art hopefully leave me alone yeah also i just don't like how you know, and me included, won't go to shows because I've seen them on Instagram. Oh, That's yeah, some you, bullshit. You can see a whole art fair in another country before, you know. I mean, that, that of course, there's there's strengths to that. Yeah, That's there's advantages. There's you know, some things you can't see and, and it's not, you know, you can't physically yeah. be at, so it's nice to see images. But sure. you realize it's a two inch by two inch capturing of something that's... Yeah, and the, you know, the photography uh, and the format of Instagram help certain paintings and murders others yeah you know uh, can make a shitty painting look good mm-hmm. and make a good painting look boring and painting is an old antiquated format that is absolutely wonderful and i love it almost more than anything else other than music um you need to trek to see it that's the whole goddamn point yeah. is that you've gotten off your tuchus and you've taken some trains or you've taken a plane and you go and you see it in the flesh and there's and no substitution for that. And someone made it and you can yeah. see that they made it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think that like, you know, Instagram is essentially drawing out a lot of the power and devotion that's essential in that. Um, I also think that you may see too much of a certain artist's work. You get tired out on it. And that's bullshit. You get to see artist branding a little bit. Yeah more than you would be aware of if you were just like, oh, it's a, I'm going to see my fr- one, uh, my friend's work in a summer show. I'm going to see, he's doing a two-person show. Uh, oh, I'm going to go uh, every, you know, uh, 14 months I see, uh, you know, this person's work. Yeah. But now when you see every little flea fart of what they do, I don't know. I think it drains out meaning and value. Take some of that charge out of it, you know? Yeah. Like yeah. if I, if I go see a show that people have been posting about for weeks, in a way I feel like, oh yeah, there it is. Yeah. Whereas back in the day when you would go to around and do a gallery walk, you'd walk in and have no idea what you were going to see. 
you know, and it kind of hits you in a different way. Yeah. Yep. But it's difficult. It's kind of like email. Like it, you could try to fight it, but really nowadays you got to use that platform as the way people are communicating. Sure. So it's this, you know, I always fret to be the older person who's getting like, well, it was better. You know, I think it was just, we're evolving or changing into a different modes of communication. And this is just a different way that people are. Commu- I, and I, I wonder your thoughts too about music and the parallel there, because it used to be, you would go see live music more, you know what I mean? You would get that record yeah. and listen to the whole record. Whereas now everything is viewable online. You know what I mean? You can see a live performance, you can download playlists and all that stuff. And I think it changes a little bit of the way that we encounter music. You know, I was just, I was trying to explain to my son the idea that I would have to wait for a record to come out and then it would come out and I would get it and hold it. And then I would listen to it over and over and like read the liner notes. I feel like it's anyone that loves records, it's painfully obvious of what happens when that scale shift between the scale shift, like a a record lover um, understands that the record that the record art, the sleeve, the liner notes are all part of the musical experience as well. Right. You, it's kind of like this mandala. You got it. You got your circle in a square, and you go and you put it on a rotating disc, and then as the you know, it's playing. You're starting to stare at this thing, and and other information's coming in, and it, and and it's so all about the meditation. So when it gets to the scale of a CD. At already at that point, you're losing yeah. some some information, and mm-hmm. you're losing this um, experience. And but by the time you get to downloadable, you've you've lost a lot. You know. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it just maybe gets replaced by the fact that you can do these incredible mixtapes that last for days. Maybe there's something cool about that. You know what I mean? Maybe yeah, that's but, the advantage. Yeah, but well, okay, this has happened a lot over the past 10 years. A friend is like, listen, get a hard drive. I'll give you uh, 15 terabytes of, mm-hmm. of so much music that you you would never be able to listen to it in a lifetime. Yeah. And that's not any help. Right. But why don't you pick five things that you think I'd really like? Yeah. That has more meaning in a certain way. Right. Versus like just completely giving me gout. Yeah. By um, giving me a quarter of the universe. Right. Um, the other thing is, is of course, I love listening to records. No, the other thing I was going to say was, like, I also came from the time where there was cassette tapes. Mm-hmm. I loved making mixes that Mix way. tapes were great. Oh, yeah. I loved it. I loved it. Um, like cobbling together. <laughs> You know, like a meaningful group of 10 songs usually. Yeah. yeah. And you could talk in between it. You yeah. Could, do all sorts of stuff that then changed when we got to CDs, or it'd be a little trickier, right? You know. Um, then there's also the idea that you'd be bringing these mixtapes around, and maybe by accident you would hit record. Right. So um, a lot of songs in my memory, I'll be listening to them on the radio or on a record, and then all, all, all of a sudden in my mind have that place where I hit record instead yeah. of you know because it's now right, becomes right. a part of the whole your memory of that yeah. song. Um, but you know, as much as I collect records and stuff, I've recently been going to see live music. And what I could say is, is that to see it live, you are involved. There's a certain type of magic that's in the air that is not 
recorded. Yeah. And you are altered physically, spiritually on the spot because you're kind of watching a um, ceremony go on, Mm -hmm. you know, and unfold and blossom. And there's something about how um, a musician can elevate the spirituality of a room of people all going on this journey together that is not captured in, in a recording ever. Yeah, and that collaboration you love and you're talking about, you get to see that interplay of multiple musicians a yeah. lot of the times, like working off of each other. You know, the things that you can't see or feel on a recording that are just happening in real life. I guess that's equivalent to, you know, the glitter on the drawing that you can't really see in the picture or that, you know, the layering of the paper or that brushstroke, the edges of it that just don't come across in that quick picture. Yeah, in the the um reproduction of photography what things are lost yeah Yeah. absolutely but isn't Uh, it amazing how because like if you think about those early times of going to a show and seeing a painting right and then like oh that's donald bachelor painting and that's the surface and isn't it amazing how much peripheral stuff nowadays has has attached itself onto the act of or viewing artwork or being an artist or being in the art world or all that other stuff how much more of that space junk is floating around the earth of of being an artist than there used to be or is it the same amount we just didn't what do you mean just like all the like like you're saying the instagram the the art career the public persona the branding the you know like all that other stuff outside of just like making something hanging it and someone looking at it it just seems like there's a lot more noise nowadays when it comes to being an artist and making work or do you feel like it's the same as it used to be? But it know. sounds like you do a pretty good job, though, of keeping a lot of that out. Yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, it's weird because when I finally jumped into Instagram, I did it head first. And I would spend hours, uh, you know, uh, one of my practices has been collecting amateur photography. And I did it since I was young. But uh-huh. when I was younger, it was older stuff like from the 20s and 30s or even the the very early photography but when in 2000 I started to jump into um, color photography and so when I saw Instagram here was this cultural thrift store I could find all these hilarious pictures and I can look them up specifically Mm -hmm. but beyond that I was also depositing every aspect of my world my collecting on there yeah and I felt like seamlessly like show and tell was on and I was going to get you know the highest medals that could be pinned on a show off show and teller and after a while like after like two or three years I started to be like well why the hell am I oversharing like this and I realized that in a certain way we live in the era of the oversharing and that that social media is encouraging us to do this and um and the opportunity is there it never was there before in that sense yeah do you know what I mean it's like oh here you could just share everything with all these people yeah yeah you know and it's so easy to do that maybe the the facility of it just makes it possible and you're like oh yeah just post my entire record collection or whatever, you know. Yeah, or what I'm eating or, yeah. you know, pictures of when I'm a kid. And right. and I feel like in a weird way, like now people justify, uh, not just, they, 
they put on parade i love my mate and here's all the pictures i love my parents here's all the pictures i yeah. love you know and why do you i don't know i mean my girlfriend currently she always said the whole time listen don't don't complicate this sharing is caring yeah and i do think there is a truth to that right it's communicating in a way it's like it's you know you're it's an olive branch or some some sort of to other people, right? You're yeah. Trying to connect in a way. Yeah, it's show and tell, which yeah. was you know what was probably my favorite class in kindergarten was show right. and tell. Yeah, yeah. And so, and and I think that that's what's at the core of an artist. Yeah. Is let me show you this. Stuff. Look what I made. Hide and seek and show and tell. Yeah. <laughs> One yeah. of the most basic but underlying reasons for an artist being. Um, but there was a certain point my my father passed away about five years ago and i uh that whole painful experience was rolled out for everybody to see on instagram and the police are coming for us now (laughs) they're they're coming to take their microphones back (laughs) um Wait, this isn't a microphone. It's a black ice cream cone, <laughs> and it's melting all over the oh, place. No. <laughs> no, but um, anyhow, I, at one point I got very um conscious that I had like turned myself inside out in front of everybody. Yeah, and just felt, well, why did, did I want to do this, or why? I don't know. It's. I think it's. It must be human nature of like when you experience something like that, then you want to just hear people, or you want. It's not that you want to share it necessarily, but you feel like this momentous thing has happened, and then you know it feels good to have people say like, "Oh, you know, I I hear you, or I I see what you're going through." Yeah, it, it is just another a newer form of communication. Yeah, in a way of touching people you wouldn't or communicating to people that you don't know um certain more private aspects of your life or something like that it was it was funny because when this all happened i i loved it i still there's part of me that does love it instagram and a lot of times a lot of the stuff that i post has 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 been culled from Instagram itself and from like hour day long hashtag searches. Uh-huh. But while this was all going on and I was head over heels over the format, my friend Billy Grant was like, I don't understand why you want to, you know, like if, if you want to see my collections, if you want to see the, the, the cream of my life's searching and junk stores, you, you gotta, you know, take the time to meet me, know me, have a meaningful conversations to the point where you come to my house and now we can go to another level right. of sharing. Yeah, yeah. Like, why the hell would you be doing this? And then I just go back to my girlfriend's idea of sharing is caring. And and the thing is, is I'm all about information. That's that's where, you know, I get my rocks off is info, new idea, yeah. and, and moving info around. Right. So, um, but... I felt like the pendulum has swung to the point where I'm starting to agree, agree with my friend Billy Grant a little bit more, especially when I feel, you know, we live in a culture of surveillance. I mean, um, I wonder too, if the, um, if maybe artists think about it a little bit more of like what the images that they're sharing in the sense that 
really our communication of making images or, or making our artwork and sharing it with people is so filtered through like, okay, I'm trying to say that, or this is the medium, this is the way it's going to look. Do you know what I mean? Like we're navigating images through art history, through popular culture, and then there's some sort of meaning you're getting out of all those references. So when it comes to just sharing pictures of like me in the morning, a selfie or something, it seems so empty of all that rigor of of how we're making the images that we create do you know what i mean so in a sense it might feel more empty than it would to other people who just go on a vacation and want to you know share like oh look how nice this meal is but i would never share photos of my meal for some reason i feel like it's just not interesting like i don't really think people really want to see that my plate of food looks nice but i understand it no i understand but i think i'm so trained to think of like oh, I want to share this image and, and I'm thinking about this iconography and like the, this the is art the of feeling it, the history, and all, yeah, all of and that stuff. And that giant equation. And yeah. The, the framework of it all and right. context. Yeah. Well, that that's the thing is uh, I'm interested when an artist makes work specifically for the medium. And I right. started to come to that as a, as, a, as a strategy to deal with it. Yeah, it but seemed like. But at that like... point, I'd already put up 2,000 photos of, you know, <laughs> you know all sorts of private stuff or stuff drawings i did when i was 11 drawings i did when i was 18 yeah you know um they should have a filter on there it's like if you've shared more than a certain amount of photos in a certain amount of time we're like are you sure you want to because i'm not going to take the stuff down but yeah, yeah you know um I, what is done is done I no just, it seems like it seems like with yours and looking at it it's it's almost like a piece onto itself you know what i mean like you're using that as a vehicle for another way of of sharing your work which a lot it seems like a lot of your work is what you're taking in too and what you're influenced by uh, most people are yeah know? yeah but yeah, um definitely. I, well I, let's I, talk about that for a little too like your work like what tell me about about music what's that what happens to the music oh yeah let's, <laughs> we gotta talk about that too no no i'm sorry to, it, <laughs> no but let's but but just i just wanted to ask you a little bit about you know the iconography or the, like the way you make your work and what you like what it means what how, how what you're trying to say through it and all that stuff i don't know that sounds like no no it's just <laughs> i don't know it's just so crazy there's so many different stories right, yeah. and there's you know at times i've explained the stuff that i do is half of me is a dadaist and the other half is a formalist one half really loves like cleanness and the other half likes raw messiness mm-hmm. um two I, sides yeah like it's I, sort of the balance yeah you never forgot about that formalism <laughs> the formalism never left mr balat <laughs> formalism come in come here come here <laughs> that voice will always be up there <laughs> i met a group of younger artists over the past couple years that went to cooper mm-hmm. um one of them is eric mack and um, it was great. I was like, was Nicky Logis? And he's like, you remember Nicky Logis? And he was like, yeah, of course I remember Nicky Logis. <laughs> she used to call me Fabric. Fabric, come over here, Fabric. <laughs> what, you worked in Fabric? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's great. And I was like, yeah, she still got her work. She still got her. <laughs> That's hilarious. Incredibly sharp, but then also very like a character voice that didn't fit the intellectualness right so it was wonderful the tension that was created oh i love yeah yeah that that's what i think about the opposites all the time is is what what makes an actor really exciting is at the beginning of a movie 
they lie to the audience, meaning they answer a question and they answer it one way, but you can tell the emotionality or spirituality of how they deliver it is actually saying something else. Yeah. And so if you can create that subtext in there is where I think all art gets really exciting. It's yeah. when tension happens of the polar opposites pulling against each other or clashing with each other. Um, That's good. <laughs> but um, what were we talking about before? With, Your work, but we could talk oh, about music too. Oh, the work. I forgot what. Uh, Why don't we talk about music and come around to that? Okay. Where does it. So, I mean, we have something in common. A deep love for a lot of music. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't even know where to start. And just our yeah. messages, like it seemed like um, we had a lot of similar interests. Music is no bullshit. <laughs> it's direct. Yeah, it's direct. It disappears. It's like smoke. It disappears. It it go, it, it it also is physical. The you know the sound waves are literally massaging you, touching you. Mm-hmm. It's textural. Um. It's funny because I think that the arts allows for a lot of bullshitting. Yeah. And music, you just wouldn't have the patience to listen to art that's trying to bullshit. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah, you just, there's a real visceral reaction to it. And yeah. Yeah. There's something beautiful about the directness of it. Completely. Um, I felt like when I grew up, like, the scarier older kids were into rock or whatever it was Van Halen, Iron Maiden, yeah, Maiden. all that stuff. And I just bolted the other direction when I was a kid and got really, you know, ran to my grandparents' music. And so I was listening to a lot of um, swing, big yeah. band. Um, but meanwhile, at my house, my father was playing a lot of jazz. Of course, there was. He played a lot of Miles Davis and the Gil Evans stuff. Mm-hmm. Played a lot of Dave Brubeck. And, uh, is this when you were in the swing? Or is this So before? I was in the swing like... Uh, were you young? Yeah, I was in kindergarten. I love, I love imagining, <laughs> imagining your dad listening to like Kind of Blue and you're listening to Bunny Berrigan. Yeah, <laughs> well, it was that kind of situation. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so when I was really young, it was the disco era. I wasn't listening to disco. And um, Did you come around to it? To disco? Yeah. Yeah, yeah me yeah. too. Yeah, in a real way. I uh, love disco now. Oh, I hated it when I was really young because my parents liked it. Yeah. And they would go disco dancing, which was really embarrassing. Yeah, watch them do the hustle in the living room. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> yeah. With these giant collars, and they got so into it. Completely. And, right. you know, at that age, you don't, you don't want to see your parents having fun or no. getting into something. No, 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 no. No, so it was terrible. But then later on, you're like, oh, this disco is pretty good. Awesome. Now I get it. It's so strange like, like that. Um, how the passage of time really does affect everything. Yeah, it does. Um, but yeah, so my father was listening to Cannibal Adderley, Bill Evans, these kind of people. So when I started to really put my um, fangs into the jazz, I um, was trying to, you know, listen to m- music that would send me into another universe. Yeah. You know, so. I actually lived where I lived on Park Avenue in East Orange was right across from Uppsala College, and the, those were the radio towers that WFMU was broadcasting. Oh, nice! So I'd hear WFMU, WBGO. I heard a lot of strange music from WFMU, but I also from WBGO would hear like um, 
um, Charlie Parker. Yeah. And but I soon ran right to John Coltrane, mm-hmm. and John Coltrane was everything to me. Yeah. Like um, I'd never heard music like that before in my life. Did you hear like the live My Favorite Things record? Oh yeah. Which you're like, wow, it's an hour long. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Love Supreme, I think, is one of the greatest albums of all time, of yeah. everything. I mean, you know, better than Taylor Swift. Um, no, come on. That's <laughs> <laughs> no, but, uh, yeah, Love Supreme, it, I specifically like the one, two, three, uh, the, the first three uh, movements. Yeah. Um, but, you know, from, from listening to him, I also listened to Eric Dolphy and then... Uh, I tried to jump into all of that um, free jazz. So, yeah. Ornick Coleman, Cecil Taylor, Farrah Sanders, all that kind of stuff. Um, Anthony Braxton? Anthony Braxton, absolutely. Um, though, like, and to tell you the truth, but when, when I started hanging out with uh, Melissa and her crew, it was wild because I um, I felt noise and free jazz definitely have connection. Very, yeah. You know, and so, so I was seamlessly was able to pop into that scene and and um, just really, yeah, it was. It was um, well, that music that, you know, came out of there wouldn't exist without free jazz, really. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Just in the same way like Daft Punk wouldn't exist without all that disco. Yeah. You know, it's just the building blocks of what's coming down the line. Yeah. So, um, man, you, but you listen to a lot of stuff and collect records. Did you get into world stuff too? Like music from different places and. Yep. The thing was, is that uh, my father was doing record covered albums, right? So he did a lot of stuff for Sal Soul. Mm -hmm. Um, but uh, the person he collaborated with, um, who got him a lot of these gigs, w- did a lot of the paste up and mechanicals for non such records. So um, my father would play Eric Satie, and mm-hmm. that was definitely some of the first stuff that I heard that made me think like, "Yeah, oh, this is an artist." Yeah, and it was great to then go into Eric Satie and learn a little bit more about him and realize he was actually a proto Dadaist. And he's one of these very strange and mystical uh, enigmas of music, you know. And think about this guy; they called him the Velvet Gentleman. Not and the not to be confused with the Velvet Fog, Mel Torme. Mel Torme. But it's he is such a wild character, um, and it's just funny to think of him right there, like what you know, in a world in a strata where. WC and Ravel are kings mm-hmm. um, and he's the odd man out but at the same time both those guys loved him and then a, a group of younger kids formed around Eric Satie and his eccentricity um, and that they were called the six so um, you have someone like Darius Milo or Francis Poulenc another one of my favorites but I didn't get to them until much later but w- the point was is when I Heard Eric Satie, it stopped me dead in my tracks in a similar way to um, Coltrane. Coltrane, yeah, yeah. Um, and so I was always exploring multiple streams of of, of music uh, side by side. And you asked if I listen to international music. Yeah, absolutely. Non such had um, great in- international um, yeah. recordings. It, it was somewhere around. 
in the 2000s where I really got obsessed, I would just buy whatever folkways I could. Mm -hmm. So I was always buying folkways records and different types of stuff like that. Um, But also around 2000, I heard a show on WFMU called The Audio Kitchen. And that show, uh, host, his name is The Professor. And it was a show dedicated to lost and found sound. Mm-hmm. Um, stuff that was that was on media like cassette tapes or reel-to-reels or wired recordings and were found in junk stores, thrift stores, attics, basements. That sounds pretty interesting. It, I never heard it. Oh, it was show. incredible. It was yeah. just, I became obsessed. I became um, someone that ran around and hunted for this type of recordings. I became very close to... Um, the professor and would supply the audio kitchen with a, lo- a lot of their um, material and even like kind of mixed it up and made my own songs based on it and stuff. But um, it's amazing uh, this found stuff. Yeah. And it's also probably why I'm in a certain way allergic to Instagram and the social media's uh, aspect of consciousness today because in a certain way, the the found material, whether whether it's found photography or cassette tapes, found audio, looks very similar to the um, material that you would find on YouTube. Yeah. But the fact is, is that most of this material was really made for an audience of one, two, three, four, you know, maybe right. nobody. Yeah. You know, a lot of these recordings are sometimes they're just kids spazzing out in their bedroom. There's you no know. intent that it's going to be seen by, or picked up by anyone. Yeah, like let alone turn into Justin Bieber. Yeah. You know, so yeah. um, that is a big conceptual difference between the amateur material. Right. Um, there's something that I really love about the idea that people are being artful in their own life. Um, and not for public consumption in a way you know yeah 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 and and maybe sometimes not even aware of it you know sometimes you are aware you're trying to be artful you're trying to cook a great meal for yeah. your friends for your girlfriend for your boyfriend um you're trying to make a great christmas card or trying to make a great birthday card or tell a joke really well yeah um and and there's something i really love about this anonymous art even uh happening even been announced the person who's making the art mm-hmm. it's something i really value about that you know um versus trying to be an artist yeah. you know yeah. so it's like it's just a shift right yeah it's like a consciousness shift it's yeah. like when i go to i love going to antique places i'm not really a collector i can't i could be but i can't do it i i have to you have myself. a lifetime I know I just can't I can't do it but but in, I want to be a collector and I love going to antique places you know antique shops and we go upstate and go to these great places there was a day when we used to go to these places and people didn't know what they had do you oh, know what sure. I mean sure like there would mm. be jadeite or something like that and they would be like it's just a green cup it's like two dollars yeah. now everyone knows exactly what they have and exactly what it's worth yeah so you can't find anything anymore yeah like if there's an old Ornette Coleman record that's, you know, out of print or something and it's like a beautiful, beautifully kept, you know, now they know it and it's going to cost you like $80 or something. Yeah. So it's just, 
uh, for all the good, there is some, you know, it's like, it's kind of a, there is thing. though, there's always is something that every, the, you know, hipsters haven't anointed as the most valuable, you know, like right. psych rock or like Brazilian psych rock was very expensive, but there's like, even in re- record hunting, I'm always looking for what people are ignoring. Thai funk. Yeah. Thai <laughs> funk is really good. <laughs> My cousin turned me onto it. It's oh, the, cool. I don't think it's that, you know, sought after, but it's pretty great. Whoa. I was thinking of stuff that was way more annoying and aggravating, like um, <laughs> Irish diddling or Celtic mouth music. Oh, there you go. That's um, That sounds a little more <laughs> abrasive. <laughs> um, I started to get into, at one point, mechanical music. Uh-huh. Another extremely annoying Like Rube genre. Goldberg comes to audio format or something? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just funny to think they're... Before records, what was popular was, um, you know, player pianos yeah. or music boxes. So in the parlor, there would be these devices. If you didn't know how to play the piano, you just wind them up and they would play yeah. these songs. And um, so I really started to geek out on people who would, in the 70s, make these recordings, the collectors showing off their broken robot musical mm-hmm. robots and what was so cool is back then a lot of these recordings the um the devices weren't restored well like you know when you get a box and you put a banjo and a piano and a violin in a small cigar box it's not going to sound normal right now add 80 years it really is going <laughs> to sound like cecil taylor yeah and so i like these older recordings from the 70s of um that people would make because nothing would be restored. Well, of course, just like every niche group now, like you said, through the internet, you know, people restore these, these, um, music boxes to a point where it sounds like Pansonic or some type of, you know, Daft Punk. Right. And it's like, Whoa, Whoa. I liked it when it sounded like you pulled it out of the water. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, like the twittering machine or something. Right. Um, but my, my, my point was is that I do believe that there's always something that everyone's not paying attention to. Right. And, you know, sometimes it's because people like John Coltrane or Miles Davis cast such a massive shadow that other musicians had to run to France. Yeah. And so there's someone who, over the past five years I was introduced to, is Jimmy Joffrey, mm-hmm. who I just think is one of the most spectacular uh, saxophonist musicians I've heard. But just because, you know, um, of this shadow that's casted, they're not as popular. Someone like Art Farmer, yeah. another guy who ran to Sweden, like... Um, it's a, it's, it's a rough thing when an artist is so talented they suck the air out of a room and there's no, no air left for anybody else to right. to do anything. And the, but it is nice when you can find those little nuggets of that person's creative work and past. You know? Yeah. Like I really love Gratian Moncourt III. And what he, was that? Gratian Moncourt III was a uh, trombone player who played on a lot of Blue Note records and he did a couple himself, but he wasn't recorded that much, you know, but but really love his sound and I feel like he was one of those people that just you know didn't get into that main circle of that blue note machine where those records were just you know coming out 
yeah. was on the outskirts a little, but the sound is so different and, and really interesting. But it's always great to find people like that. Oh, my know? God. And you like know. I, the first time I found John Wesley was like when I was in undergraduate school. It was on Art in America, cover Art in America. I was like, what the hell is this? Like, it looks like pop, but it's weird. Like, it's a guy in his underwear chasing a duck or something. (laughs) (laughs) But you know what I mean? Like, finding that and being like, oh, okay, this is, he was kind of on the periphery of the pop movement. Like, people weren't paying really close attention to him, but then kind of gets that second wave. He's at Frederick and Fryser, right? Yeah. 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 But it's cool when you find that kind of stuff. Yeah. that, That sort of outer circle of whatever was, you know, hitting at the moment. Completely, man. And that's what's great about um, the, the endless lifetime search. Right. Um, what fell in my lap like maybe five years ago that was tremendous um, was Herbie Nichols. Oh, yeah. Great pianist. Oh, my Lord. It's uh, just feel good. Like it's oh just the right on the spot, you know? Yeah. Oh, it's just tremendous. Right it's in tremendous. the groove. Yeah. You know, um, I love the Marx Brothers so much and I always have this daydream that they'll uncover oh here's the lost Marx Brothers film and all of a sudden we'll have another 80 minutes of their magic yeah, um, for us to digest well Herbie Nichols is as almost as though they found like um, seven Felonious Monk albums mm-hmm. and that's where I see him as in this great New York lineage Um. Now, I'll tell you this great tip. Um, There's this guy who sells records on the street that's right by... um, It's right by 23rd Street and 7th Avenue. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, if you were going to go to the Chelsea Hotel or El Cajote... Right. um, There's a guy that's out there. He learned me so hardcore. um, And so one day he said, Hey, you know Herbie Nichols? And I said, No. He's like, Well, he's in the felonious monk uh, um, tradition. He's as good. And I was like, Bullshit. Yeah. (laughs) I don't want to hear this. Felonious monk is one of the greatest. I don't want, whatever. He's like, Yep. Well, I'm just telling you. And I was like, Okay. I was like, How much is this record? He's like, 25. And I'm like, Well, I guess I have to pay for an education. I brought it home. I gave it a listen. And I, I was resistant at first. You know, because nothing sounds like monk. Yeah, like on first listen, it's just it's a different yeah, thing. Yeah. yeah, but it finally really got to me, and it's so tremendous. And you know, it's a, he's a kind of wild guy who is a super intellectual, and even he himself knew that um, he wasn't going to be a famous jazz um, musician because he felt he didn't have the cult of personality which would get him across. Yeah. So he was a, in his mind he was a real peabody. He he actually asked Mary Lou Williams to marry him. Oh really? Yeah, and he even wrote Mary's Waltz for her that which who she plays that song. Um that would be a real power couple on the piano. Yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> um but it was that that dude also turned me on to when I got back and he goes, hey, and this is also um, in that same monk school is this guy named Randy Weston. And I'm like, come on, lightning can't strike twice. Well, of course yeah. it can. <laughs> and uh, Randy Weston was introduced to me. Um, this guy's on on the street, I would say, five days a week. He's amazing. And That's right by where the guitar shop used to be. Right. Yeah, there used to be a guitar store right there, and also a Radio Shack. Now it's Donut Plant. I think so. Right, right next to El Quixote. 
Yeah. Oh, yeah, the donut place is there, but this is on 7th Avenue, just as you turn. Yeah. Oh, I see. Around yeah, the corner. So yeah, it's yeah. where Radio Shack was. It's near Papaya. You King, know. yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, hearing Randy Weston was incredible. I can't believe he wrote High Fly. What an incredible song. And if you get a chance, check out Eric Dolphy's version of High Fly. Uh-huh. It's tremendous. Speaking of, no one sounds like Dolphy. Oh, I know, Monk man. Monk Dolphy. And something tells me you would be a fan of Moondog. Oh, yeah, Moondog's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. I don't know him as well, mm-hmm. but, yeah, I love Moondog. I love the idea that he made recordings outside, and a lot of times you can hear, like, him interacting with, like, um, Steamship, you know, yeah. yeah, you know, like, um, yeah, he's tremendous. Nothing like him. And also, this guy was walking around the streets. It was yeah. a different type of New York. Dressed as a Viking. Yeah. yeah. Blind. It's so tremendous, man. Yeah. It's pretty cool. Moondog, Sun Ra. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's good stuff out there. Yeah, man. <laughs> Holy moly. Such that was another one of those moments when I saw Space is the Place, where I was just like, what? Uh, like the re- movie? Yeah. Like, yeah. recalibrated things for me. It's like, oh. Yeah. That's out there. So tremendous. There's a great um, one performance i'd recommend that's on youtube and it was on a tv show that david sanborn a night um it's like called like jazz night or something like mm-hmm. this and so david sanborn um had the show and he had on sun Ra, and he did this song called retrospect and of course you know he's in his gowns and capes and waving his hands around with a great deal of like that religious science i was talking about before mm-hmm. and it's somewhere between Free jazz, religious science, and the Muppets. <laughs> and at one point, the whole band gets up and starts marching in a circle. It's it makes you know I'm getting goosebumps now just trying to just thinking about it. I definitely recommend it for checking out on yeah. YouTube. It's good. Yeah, I had one of the most profound experiences of my life to Sun Ra. The band I was playing with, we were on tour, and we were in uh, I think we were in Louisville. We got food poisoning, played our set, threw up before we started playing, played our set, ran to the bathroom, threw up. I remember laying in the back of the club on the floor, and the other band members were on the floor too, and the room was spinning. Like, you know, I, I don't know what we got. but Oh, my God. But uh, Rocket Number 9 came on. Oh, my God. Which was the perfect song at that moment. Like, it was just surreal out-of-body experience, like spinning and listening to Rocket Number 9. I've been a Sun wow. Ra fan ever since. <laughs> You know, just recently, um, one of the members of the band, I forget his name, uh, was in charge of the Sun Ra, like Sun Ra appointed him to be in control of his uh, recording archive, all Uh of the reels or whatever. So more recently in the past five, seven years, um, they've published a lot of Sun Ra's, uh, um, his poetry. Yeah. And so they put out like maybe four albums of stuff never heard before of a lot of his um, poetry. And it's awesome. And it's like the whole another aspect of Af- Afrofuturism. Right. And uh, it's 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 amazing. It's also um, with anyone with a conscious, it's, it has a little tinge of sadness. Yeah. Because you realize that you know it was so rough here and still is for um black people that he had to create an imaginary world to get the fuck out of here yeah the urge was to escape the planet yeah 
And so you can hear this criticism of white culture of America, but through science fiction. So it's almost even more um, sad. Yeah. Because it isn't come to you with a fist or a middle finger. Right. It comes to you with fantasy, and then you realize, holy shit. It had to be suppressed into kind of another narrative to be discussed. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of Afrofuturism. It's probably only open for a couple more days. There's a great show at Red Bull Academy of Ramel Z. Yeah. It's probably the largest show that they put together of Ramel Z. And um, anyone should go check that out. It's a tremendous show. Definitely. Um, yeah, I just want to get into a little bit of like what you have going on, like what's coming up, how people can check out your work and and all that good stuff. Okay, cool. Yeah, um, this has been this an exciting year. I've got a lot of stuff uh, lined up. Um, I One of my last big projects was at Gavin Brown's uh, up in Harlem, Mm -hmm. and I did a show um, dedicated to children's art and children's art education. Um, It had a classroom on site where kids uh, from the neighboring area came over two months and would um, take pretty simple, basic classes and make art and hang it up in the gallery, Um, as well as... The, the show was really about like two classrooms intersections. So there was a working classroom and then there was a historical classroom. And that was represented by the collection of this woman named Rhoda Kellogg. Mm-hmm. And I um, cl- have been a longtime collector of children's art and I collected tons of books on children's art. And through that sea of collecting, I found Rhoda Kellogg's books, and this was another kind of epiphany for me, a kind of John Coltrane moment. And I uh, was able to track down, or actually the school she designed is still in use in mm-hmm. San Francisco. It's still open. And I tracked down her archive, because throughout all of her books, she kept on mentioning that she had this massive collection of children's art that by the end of her life uh, reached uh, the size of like two million examples Mm -hmm. so anyhow i found the collection it was in a storage locker um, in new haven and have been systematically going through this collection um, and and eventually i'm going to make a massive 400 page coffee table book of this collection and um, that's what is in the studio here is a lot of, of, of her archive. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've been, it's been one of my missions now to get this collection um, out into the world and have eyeballs see it, but also have it be a thing that promotes art, uh, art for children, art yeah. education, and, and also the necessity of that. Right. Also, it also hits upon about how very early children's art, actually all the kids are speaking an identical language. Yeah. And it isn't until we get nationalized that we get prideful of where, where we're from. Right. You know, yeah. and start building walls. Anyhow, so the first show that's coming up will be in October at the Cobra Museum in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. where I will be repeating what I did in Harlem. There will be a classroom there. And surrounded by hundreds of examples from the Rhoda Kellogg collection. Mm-hmm. And then I'm doing a really fun project with uh, Mauricio Catalan in China. 
um, where he is actually making a fake Chinese restaurant. Mm -hmm. And he's um, really into the idea of artists to do copies. So I've done a lot of copies based on art from the Rhoda Kellogg collection. So these paintings that are here in the room that we're recording this Uh are um, reverse glass paintings based on one of the star students of Rhoda Kellogg. Her name was Jessica. And so these paintings will be going into this fake Chinese restaurant in China around the same time that the Cobra show is opening. Uh-huh. But here in New York, for anyone that's going to be around, I'll, I'll be having a show in November. The date isn't fixed, but at uh, Gavin Brown's uh, Grand Street space. Nice. And it's going to be one of the kookiest shows yet, folks. <laughs> I'm going to be showing some, some of the more stranger products that come out of my studio. I'm going to be showing my frozen artwork, mm-hmm. so um, stay tuned. That sounds that's okay. <laughs> that sounds good. Cool. Well, and then people can see your stuff on, like, on the internet, I guess. Yeah, I mean, there is a, a website that's floating around. That's kind of a piece of digital garbage at this point, but, but right. uh, something that uh, my girlfriend put together somewhere around 2006 and that's right. floating around but a lot of stuff is archived on my instagram which right. is just brian Bellotti. so it's b-e-l-o-t-t-i but um, i think what, what what we got to today is that you really got to schlep over to the gallery and see the work in person oh yeah don't look at that there's nothing on the internet what did i just say <laughs> <laughs> there's live videos of coltrane though playing that's, that's things it. like that oh yeah Make make the internet gold. It's tremendous. Um, Some of those live recordings of Coltrane playing. I think there was one where Elvin Jones, it's uh, steaming. There's like literally smoke coming off of him. And, you know, John Coltrane essentially just melts time. Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything like it. Man, I saw Elvin Jones right before he passed away. He played at the Blue Note and he was had an oxygen tank and he was still banging the hell out of those drums wow it was very impressive wow you know i uh, missed seeing him my friend saw him and my one friend who's a drummer said that he just shook his hand it was like shaking a trunk of a tree it's just like you could feel the power but when he plays it looks like he's not even trying it's amazing it's just like it's flowing out of him you know wow yeah it's a gift that's tremendous <laughs> well thanks for having me over it was great to come over and meet again thank you for having me cool thanks Sound and Vision is recorded, edited by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find images I take from the studios at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can also donate to the podcast, grab a Sound and Vision tote, and learn more about the show there. Uh, Please leave a review on iTunes and rate the podcast. It helps a lot. You can find more about my work at paintchanger.com. I'll have work with Miles McHenry Gallery coming up at Expo Chicago, and I also teach at the Penn State University. Many thanks for listening to the podcast and for all of your support.